Anyone want to guess how long it's been since we were in the Gospels in our study of the life of Christ? It's been nine months, yeah, since October. Yeah, hard, hard to believe it. This is part 312 of our series, and I ran some numbers and estimate we're about 60% of the way through the Gospels, and so I project about 200 more lessons. If you want to be real precise, 197. So we'll see how it goes. I'm not sure I'll live that long, but um, anyway, I appreciate all your faithfulness over the years. We're getting close to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and before too long, we'll get to the triumphal entry, even to Jerusalem, the week before his crucifixion. And shortly after our passages for today, we'll have parallels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Say Luke 18 says, He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after that, they have, they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So, the the Gospels are, are leading to this, aren't they? And so we're getting close to Passion Week. The the big focus of the Gospels in terms of the the, uh, the size of it is focused more on his the, the past week than any other portion of his ministry, of course. But there are a few more stories to tell before we get to Passion Week, and one of the most famous ones is the story of the rich young ruler, which we'll look at today. And this is a longer section, but we'll look just at the first part where Jesus encounters the rich young ruler, and later we'll look at the reaction to that encounter with this young man. So let's read Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22. Matthew nineteen sixty to 22 Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Then Mark 10, 17-22. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. <clears throat> and then Luke eighteen eighteen to 23. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. <clears throat> do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess, and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, one question you might ask yourself as we enter this portion of Scripture is, where does this take place? And it doesn't say exactly, but earlier in Mark chapter 10, Verse 1, it says, Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again. According to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And then he he has children brought to him to be blessed. And so it may be that Jesus is across the Jordan, not too far from Jerusalem, where he's headed next. Well, let's look first in this story about the man's important question. And here we have Matthew nineteen sixteen. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? 
in Mark 10, 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Then Luke 18, 18, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you'll notice as we look at these side by side, we'll see some subtle and not so subtle differences in the accounts, but they all harmonize well, I think. Now, we meet here the man, and Matthew it just says someone, and verse 20 says he's a young man, and Mark just mentions a man, and Luke says he's a ruler. And this man is known as a rich young ruler, that's, that's the famous term for him, but we only get that from a composite of the gospel accounts. So if you just take uh, Matthew, you get young, you have Luke, a ruler, but all the gospels say that he was rich. Now, when he was young, maybe he was under 40. I still think under 60 is young, but that's just me. Uh, maybe, maybe a little over 60. Um, but only Luke says that he is a ruler. And we don't know exactly what kind of ruler. He may have been a ruler in a synagogue or maybe some sort of civil leader, something he might have even been in the Sanhedrin, the, the, the ruling council in Jerusalem. So he was probably well regarded in this community, a man of great importance, prominence. We have the a rich young man, either in a, on the civil ruler side or, or the religious ruler side. And you can, it's interesting to contrast this man here who comes to Jesus to the children in the previous passage. Remember when the children came to Jesus, the disciples rebuked them. Those children are not worthy of Jesus' time. But if you were to ask disciples who's worthy of Jesus' time, probably this rich young ruler is the guy. Um, the, the poor young traveling rabbi from Galilee who meets the rich young local bigwig in the area beyond the Jordan. One thing I enjoy as I, I'm looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even John sometimes together is to see the difference in styles. And sometimes it really comes out. And I just want to show you something I, I notice as I'm looking at Mark's account. We see this energy and emotion in his account that's not so much there in Matthew and Luke's account. And so we have here in verse 17, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, so he's, he's getting ready to go, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. And then verse 21 says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. That, that looking and feeling a love is not in the other accounts either. And Jesus, looking around, said, speaks to his disciples. And then in verse 24, it says, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then they were even more astonished. So we have this sort of two, two statements from Jesus about how hard it is to get into the kingdom. And then Jesus again looks at them. So in Mark's account, Jesus is, well, there's a man running and kneeling, and then Jesus is looking and he's feeling emotion and he's, he's astonishing the disciples more than any other gospel accounts. So I just like to pull these things out from time to time just to see the different styles. Mark, of course, is the shortest gospel, but in this particular case, he has more text devoted to the story than the other two gospel writers do. And so they all have their their interests, their inclinations, their styles, and I, I just like to point out Mark's when I notice it like this. Well, back to the question from this young man. And the situation may sound a little familiar. Uh, some time ago, we looked at Luke chapter 10 and the story of the Good Samaritan. And we have... A man, again, coming to Jesus and asking an important question. Verse 25, uh, Luke 10, says, A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And then he reads a couple of, um, of the commandments there and so forth. And Jesus says, verse 28, You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And then he asks a question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. So, very similar account. We have a lawyer, but this lawyer stands up in Luke 10. In this case, this ruler comes and throws himself at Jesus' feet and kneels and says, how uh, shall I get eternal life? What good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, you notice there is a difference in these accounts. Where Matthew says, uh, the man says, teacher, what good things shall I do? And, and Jesus answers, why are you asking me about what is good? Uh, in, in the next verses, and Mark says, the man says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Luke says much the same thing. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then in the next verses it says, why do you call me good? Now, which is correct? People ask this question. There's lots of discussion in the commentaries. Is it good teacher, what good things shall I do? Uh, Or teacher, what good things shall I do? Or uh, good teacher, what shall I do? Now, if you have the King James, it's interesting, this comes up because we talked for some weeks about differences between King James and other translations. If you have King James, the, the King James and the Greek text it's, that it uses in Matthew says, good master, what good things shall I do? So it kind of takes all those parallels and merges them together. And it, it sort of papers over this difference. There's probably some scribes from said, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a little different, so let me just harmonize those together. So instead of one saying, teacher, what good things shall I do? And then others saying, good teacher, what shall I do? It makes it so it's, good teacher, what good things shall I do? Just, just melding them together. But the best manuscripts we have weren't harmonized in this way, so we need to talk about it a bit. And, and again, we could talk about this for a long time, but I think the best way to explain this in general is that the gospel writers don't always quote Jesus word for word. And we may be misled a bit when we see the quotation marks in our English Bibles. Like, this is somebody who's who's standing before Jesus and writing down exactly what he says, like shorthand, like a, like a court reporter. And then that's exactly how Jesus said it and the exact words he used. And that's not always the case. First of all, Jesus was not likely speaking Greek on this occasion, which is what the New Testament was written in. So the writers themselves would have to do some translating. If you were to take some... English text and, and give it to somebody who knew Spanish well and say translates it to Spanish, you're not going to get exactly the same output um, with the the translators. And so there's there's differences that we could say based on that. And as I said before, besides that, they aren't necessarily concerned with getting the exact wording, but getting the general sense of what was said. And sometimes the writers will include or exclude some things based on their own styles and interests. Though we will say even though the, the gospel writers wrote what they, they wanted to, um, they were all under the inspiration of the Spirit. So even if these differences are part of God's inspiration. Now, back to this question from the man. He asks how he can gain eternal life. Eternal life. And this term, eternal life, is used often in Scripture, especially, you'll remember, in the gospel and the letters of John. And we don't know what this man's expectation was of eternal life, if he had the sort of full-orbed view we might have ourselves as 21st century Christians of what the Bible says about eternal life. But maybe he had in mind this from Daniel 12 too, which says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So this man was not a Sadducee who say there is no afterlife, but he had some, some view that he knew that there was a life after death, a life eternal and that he knew that he wanted it, and he thought that Jesus could tell him how to grab it, how to, how to gain hold of it. But the biblical truth, as we'll, we'll see as we move through this passage, is that eternal life is connected with the kingdom of God. It's also connected with treasure in heaven. So eternal life, kingdom of God, treasure in heaven, all these things are connected with each other. If you have one, you have the other. Now, as again, as Christians, now we have the, the scriptures and we can have a, a bigger view of what eternal life is. John 17 is a, a classic, important text on this. What is eternal life? Jesus is praying before his crucifixion. and it said, He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so, when Jesus is speaking here, John 17, 1-3, he's not saying eternal life is <clears throat> being in heaven a long time. He's saying eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. So the life is from knowing God, not from living a long time. Of course, this eternal life comes through faith in Jesus Christ and only through faith in Jesus Christ. 
John 3.16, you know this well. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. But if you go to verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So, it's not as though there are many ways to eternal life. The only way to eternal life is in Jesus Christ through faith in him. Outside that path, there is no eternal life, only the wrath of God abiding on you. And this eternal life is, as we say from John 3, from faith, not from good works. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is what? Death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have this free gift of God, not from from works, not from doing good things, but because God has granted it to us freely in Christ. And there's many more verses on eternal life, but again, it's more of a quality of life than a quantity. You might remember an old cartoon where there's a, a guy sitting on a cloud, he's got a halo of angel's wings, obviously sitting in heaven all by himself, and he's thinking, I wish I'd bought a magazine. And that's a, a view of heaven is sitting by yourself, being bored alone with your your wings and your halo, with nothing to do but sit around for eternity. That's not what heaven is. If that's what heaven were, then who would want to go there? Who wants to be bored forever and ever and ever? But if we are in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus Christ, in the presence of all his people forever, worshiping him and adoring him forever, this object of our highest love, the one we love the most, then that is eternal life for us. That is life everlasting, and that's a wonderful life everlasting, not just stretching out a boring or painful or difficult human life. As much as I love my life with my family and and my, my the church and, and job and all that, I, I don't want that to go on forever. At, at some point, I'm sure, as I get older, every year, maybe every decade, I'll get more and more tired and more eager for heaven, um, but having this sort of endless life stretched out as I get older and older and more feeble is not something I look forward to. Now, this man's question has been asked. Let's look next at Jesus' side question. Jesus doesn't answer him directly, as he often does not do. Um, he asks a question first, Matthew nineteen seventeen. The first part says, He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Mark 10.18 says, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Luke 18.19 says really the same thing. And so, again, slight differences between Matthew and then Mark and Luke. But it's interesting that Jesus didn't immediately answer this man's question, but he asked a question of his own. And some say, when you look at these, that this means that Jesus is denying that he is God and that he himself doesn't have the goodness of God. He said, don't ask me about what's good. Ask God. I'm not good. God is. But Jesus doesn't say he's not good, does he, in these verses? Or that he's not God in human flesh. He's just asking, what, what is this man trying to gain by calling Jesus good? Or asking about what is good? Some say that this response by Jesus is just a rebuke for trying, this, this man trying to flatter Jesus. Now, if you want something from somebody, especially eternal life, you might say, oh, good teacher, good teacher, you're so good, tell me how to get eternal life. But the idea may be that this man shouldn't throw around the term good too casually. Jesus is saying, be careful with that term good. We talk about uh, having a good meal or a good dog or kids be good, but and that's fine to do that, but when you're using the term good, think of God first and foremost. God is a standard by which all good is measured. And one commentator said this, Jesus says, in effect, you are not conceiving of goodness in an adequate way when you so lightly address me as good teacher. If you wish to contemplate goodness, you should think of God who alone is good and of the keeping of his commandments. And based on the man's response later, he really did need to have his idea of the good recalibrated uh, and the more elevated we perceive God's goodness, the more we see we fall short. Because as I said, God is the standard of goodness. If we 
think lightly of sin? Are we just thinking lightly of sin? And we're thinking lightly of God's goodness. If we complain, if we are uh, angry with our circumstances, if we uh, are just un- unhappy with where God has put us, that's not just a sin in a, in a small sphere, but the sin is really questioning God, isn't it? You think about the complaints that people made in the time of the, the Exodus. And again and again, they complained against God. We need food. We're, we're thirsty. We're, we're, we're frightened. And when they were saying those things, they weren't just grumbling to themselves. They were grumbling against God and against God's goodness. So the, the bigger we see God's goodness, the, the more clearly we see our sin, and the more we need to throw ourselves upon his goodness because he's the only one from whom we can receive the goodness that we need, the grace that we need. Another commentator said this, beyond this response Jesus said here, if this young man had really believed with all his heart that Jesus was good in the highest sense of the term, he would have obeyed the command the Lord was about to give him. Makes sense, doesn't it? This man calls Jesus a good teacher, and Jesus says, okay, do this to get eternal life. And the man says, no, we'll see, as you know the story, and we'll see later. So if this man really thought Jesus was a good teacher, would he or would he have not have done what Jesus said? He would have done what Jesus said because he believed Jesus' goodness. But his, his love for his riches was greater than his view of Jesus as this good teacher. So Jesus has this sort of side question. We dealt with that a bit. Let's look now at the answer Jesus gives to the man's question. He, he gets next to the answer. And Matthew 19, second part of verse 17 through 19. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery, or murder rather, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Mark 10, 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And Luke 18.20 says much the same thing, except it doesn't have the term do not defraud in there. And this is surprising. If someone came to you and says, what must I do to have eternal life? You all have your probably gospel presentations in, in your head. You want to talk about uh, salvation by grace, your faith alone. You might talk about sin for a while. But you're probably not likely to list a bunch of laws that you need to keep. List of commandments. Jesus doesn't ask him to say a sinner's prayer. He doesn't go into this message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. I might have responded to say, you can't do any good thing to get eternal life. You can't be good enough to do that, which is certainly true. But Jesus wants to probe a bit and see where this man's heart is. And Matthew has this statement the others don't have. Uh, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then we have the response from this man. And we do, in fact, have a verse like Leviticus 18, verse 5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So God gives this promise of life if you keep the commandments. But again, this sounds like salvation by works. But as we think about this relationship between the, the law and salvation, John Calvin says this, the keeping of law of the law is righteousness by which any man who kept the law perfectly, if there were such a man, would obtain life for himself. So there's a, a theoretical uh, possibility that if you kept all the works of the law perfectly that you could be righteous before God, but we have both in us the, the original sin we get inherited from Adam and our, our own uh, corruption from the, on that basis and our own personal sin as we walk through life. And so, as Paul says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, in a purely theoretical sense, we could keep the commandments to obtain life, but once we are in a fallen state, there's no way to get back that righteousness in our own works. Now, in Matthew, as I said, the man asks which laws he has to keep. And I'm not sure whether he's just trying to figure out a, a bare minimum or 
as we'll see shortly, he thinks he's pretty much kept them all, but is maybe still missing something. Now, for those who are keeping score, if you know your Ten Commandments, Matthew here, Jesus quotes the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and then fifth. These are what's called the second table of the law, those dealing with relationships between um, people. And then Jesus in Matthew adds the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself from uh, from Leviticus 19.18. And Mark is similar to this, but he puts in do not defraud towards the end. And he also admits the quote from Leviticus. And then Luke uh, shuffles the order around a little bit. He, he goes 7, 6, 8, 9, 5. Again, if you're keeping track of these, 7th, 6th, 8th, ninth, and 5th commandment. So basically the same thing, like shuffled in order a bit. We have the idea here that Jesus is focusing here on these horizontal laws, these laws that respect interactions, relationships between, between people. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't mention the laws directed toward God, especially what Jesus has called the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is focusing on the, we might call the easier laws. He's starting small. And will this man confess that while he's tried to keep God's law, he knows he's kept it imperfectly and is guilty in his sin? Well, we'll find out next in the man's response. The man has heard Jesus demands here, keep the commandments. So what does he say? Matthew nineteen twenty, the young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Mark ten twenty, he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Luke eighteen twenty one, he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. Now we might criticize this man for pride in saying such things. But perhaps, if you were a very religious young man, you might say that you've kept these laws at a high level if you've led an exemplary life. Going back here, you think, well, I never killed anybody, never committed adultery, I haven't stolen from anybody, I haven't uh, lied, and this is focused initially on a court of law. I've never been in a court of law and and lied. Uh, I, I honor my mom and dad okay, and maybe this would be a little harder to keep. But you could you could see how somebody who's Thinking in a very shallow way, you might say these kept that kept these laws. But there's an interesting detail that Matthew alone gives, and it's at the end of verse 20. He says, "What am I still lacking? What am I still lacking?" If you just looked at the statement he makes in Mark and Luke, you might get the impression he's just arrogant or self-deluded. And you get that also from Matthew, but there's a bit of vulnerability here because he realizes he, he's missing something. I have kept these laws, but there's still something I, I need to do because I know that I don't have eternal life yet. He's been diligent to keep God's law, at least in his own mind, but he has a sense that it's not enough. And we see, as we, again, as we harmonize these accounts, he, he's running and he's kneeling at Jesus' feet and he's asking these questions. There's a sort of desperation. He doesn't just sort of walk walk over, sidle over to Jesus. Oh, he bumps into him. He's running and kneeling at Jesus' feet. He wants eternal life. He's tried to live a good life and he knows there's something that's still missing. And he thinks maybe there is some commandment he's overlooked. He's studied the scriptures and maybe there's some commandment back there somewhere that, that he just missed. So this young man is more sensitive than many we might talk to that have no interest in spiritual things and aren't concerned with eternal life. I mean, how many of us would love to have somebody come up to us randomly and say, hey, I think you're a Christian, aren't you? How can I have eternal life? You talk to so many people who just say, I don't care. I'm not interested. I'm focused on my my own thing. You can take your Jesus stuff, but I'm not interested. And so we have people who we talk to who, who either are actively hostile to Jesus. There are some who who are just don't care much at all about Jesus. Others who have some interest in him, and even who will talk to us about these things. And we think, boy, this is a prime evangelistic uh, subject, isn't it? He's just ready to, to be harvested. This, this guy, if anybody is ready, uh, a white uh, field for harvest, this is the man. But even this sensitivity, this eagerness, 
he is self-deceived that he has really kept God's law well enough as far as that goes. Now James 2.10 says this, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. This young man might say, well, I keep the whole law and maybe stumble at one point, God will forgive me. But the truth is, you're guilty of all. One sin is enough to, to damn each one of us. And Matthew Henry says this, had this man been acquainted with the extent and spiritual meaning of the law, instead of saying, all these I have kept, what lack I yet, he would have said with shame and sorrow, all these I have broken, what shall I do to get my sins pardoned? This man had a shallow view of what his sin was and what the offense was against God. He needs to have that deeper sense of his sin. So, Jesus will answer this man's question, what am I still lacking? And Jesus tells him, what is his lack? Matthew 19.21, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete or, or perfect, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And Mark 10.21 says, Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Luke 18.22 When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, Follow me. Now, Jesus could have gone in various directions. It's, it's interesting to think through, if this man came to you with these questions, how would you answer them yourself? But after the man said, all these things I've kept from my youth up, Jesus could have said, no, you haven't. You're, you're a sinner. You're a rotten sinner. He could have maybe quoted himself from Matthew 5.20, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You want to get the kingdom? Well, you need to be, uh, need be better than a, a scribe and a Pharisee. Or maybe a little later in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Maybe this man thinks he hasn't committed murder. Well, Jesus says, you shall not commit murder, but whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And maybe you haven't committed adultery, but Jesus says, later, Matthew five twenty eight, if anyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So, young man, can you say that you never lusted after any woman at all? If you have, then you have broken God's law, and you're guilty before him. Or even verse 48, Jesus could have quoted himself and said, Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to be perfect? Be perfect like God is perfect. And then the man could say, well, I'm not that perfect. Not that good. But Jesus, instead of just contradicting this man, he says something surprising. He demands that this man sell his possessions and give them to the poor and then to follow Jesus. Now Matthew Peter, Andrew, James, and John, some of the disciples did something like this. Jesus said, come follow me, and they left their businesses, and they went to follow Jesus. Maybe they weren't as rich as this young man was, but they left what they had and went to follow Jesus. Jesus makes a similar demand of this young man. And again, this sounds shocking. It sounds like works righteousness. If I do these things, then God will be pleased with me. But Jesus has, in fact, said something like this earlier in Luke fourteen thirty three. He says, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And even just before that, Luke fourteen twenty six, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So this is not some new discipleship command out of the blue from Jesus in, in Luke 18. He said it before in Luke 14 and other places. And Jesus says, sell all your things, give them away to the poor, and you will have, it says here, treasure in heaven. 
Jesus has talked before about treasure in heaven. In fact, we've, we're just in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read again, Matthew 6, 19-21. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your, what? There your heart will be also. So, if your treasure is on earth, your heart's going to be on earth. If your treasure's in heaven, that's where your heart is also. And this gets to the heart of the matter. The heart is the issue. And giving away all this young man had would not earn him salvation, but Jesus was using this demand to get to the root of this man's heart problem. While he might think that he was keeping the commandments, even if externally he was righteous, he had a a much deeper issue. In his love of wealth, he broke at least the first two commandments. So maybe he kept the, the second half of the law okay, but the first half is a, is a huge problem for him. Exodus 20 starts out like this. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment listed. Second, you shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Now, this man didn't have an idol, I'm sure, in his home that he was worshiping, made out of gold or something like that, but he was worshiping his wealth. He was worshiping and serving his wealth. His love of wealth kept him from obeying the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This man loved his wealth more than he loved God. Despite all of his righteous, outwardly righteous actions, his love was not for God. And so Jesus, by asking making this demand, rather, he's exposing this heart problem, this idolatry problem, with the demands of discipleship. And William Hendrickson notes that this command, really, while it may look like salvation by works, it really isn't. To sell your things and follow Jesus is not salvation by works, but it's a demonstration of trust in Jesus. This man has lived in this opulence for a time, but if he sells all he has and then gives to the poor and follows Jesus, what does he have? He has nothing, nothing but Jesus. That should be enough, but it's not for him. But that would be a great step of faith to get rid of all the things he loved most where he had placed his confidence and follow Jesus. Now, I want to make another quick note here that when Jesus says, follow me, at the end of this, this is an implicit claim to deity. Not necessarily in all the passages where he says it, but in this case, it is, because he's saying this man wants eternal life, doesn't he? He wants eternal life. To get eternal life, you have to follow Christ. And so we, while we might sometimes look for these verses that completely or explicitly teach about Jesus being God, like John 1.1, 1, 1, um, in the beginning was a word, the word was with God, the word was God. There are sometimes we see these verses that Jesus makes an implicit claim to deity. So, no mere man could righteously call another to follow him in order to obtain eternal life. If you said, how may I obtain eternal life? And I said, follow me, you would think I had messianic delusions, wouldn't you? But if I say, well, you can follow Christ, or follow me as I follow Christ, Christ is the ultimate one whom we follow, the one that we are disciples of. And so by saying Jesus himself, following Jesus is the way to get to eternal life, that is, I think, an implicit claim that Jesus is God in human flesh. If Jesus were a mere man telling somebody to follow him for eternal life, that would be blasphemous. But if he is the true Son of God, then it is the righteous thing to follow this man who is God's Son. Now, before we move on from these verses, Mark has a special edition. Looking at him, he felt a love for him. And once again, the gospel writers show that Jesus isn't some sort of teaching, healing machine. Earlier in Matthew, chapter 9, verse 36, seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he saw the desperation in this young man and longed to see him repent and believe. And in a sense, this young man was so close to salvation, he was asking the right questions. He was in Jesus' presence. But in another sense, this man was very far away because his love for his stuff 
was so great. But Jesus wouldn't compromise or tone down his message just to win a convert, unfortunately, as many churches do today. Well, we have then, after this man's lack, we have the man's grief. The man's grief. Matthew 19.22, But when the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Mark 10.22, But as these, at these words he was saddened. He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And then Luke, a little bit different, 18.23, But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. You see the different descriptions. Matthew says he went away grieving. Mark says he was saddened, went away grieving. And this term saddened is used in another place of darkening clouds. Or you might see in your marginal note, he became gloomy. His face was one for eagerness. How do I get salvation? But when Jesus said this, his face darkened like, like a cloud would darken. The sky darkens when the clouds come. And then Luke says he became very sad. This man wanted eternal life. He came to the right place for an answer. He had an interest in Christ, but the price was too much for him. In fact, while he owned much property, in a deeper sense, the property owned him, didn't it? It was his possessions that kept him from eternal life. This man, again, has something to commend him. When Jesus confronted many of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees with their hypocrisy, they went away angry at Jesus and tried to kill him, wanted to kill him. But this man went away sad, even very sad. He was even grieving as he went away from Jesus. He still wanted eternal life, and he knew how to get it and who to get it from, but he didn't want to pay the price. We can contrast this with Jesus' parable in Matthew thirteen forty-five. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Earlier in Luke, Jesus says, Luke twelve fifteen, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then he tells the story of the rich man who wanted to build bigger and bigger barns. And God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. This young man here, this rich young ruler, was a fool because he was not rich toward God. And we'll see a contrast a little later with Zacchaeus in the Gospel of Luke, another rich man, but one who was more out of favor with society as a tax collector. But he was willing to follow Christ and give up all his possessions. And Paul, also, Philippians chapter 3. Paul, Philippians chapter 3. His biography was much like this rich, rich young ruler. Uh, verse 4. Although I, might, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Does that sound familiar? Paul said he was blameless in the law, as this young man did. But, Paul says here, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So, Paul was willing to lose all of his things, all these things that he would boast in. He gave them all up for Christ's sake. This rich young ruler was not willing to do that. He didn't love Christ enough. He loved his things too much. So that was Paul's reaction. Very similar background, but different reaction to Christ. Some, in fact, even think that this rich young ruler was Paul but I don't think that's the case. We can even look further back, thinking of those who gave up what they loved for God's sake. Think about Abraham. Abraham was very wealthy, but in one respect, he was poor because he had no son. He had lots of things, but no heir. And God promised him the son through Sarah and then fulfilled that promise. But then in Genesis 22, it says that God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, we don't see 
Abraham's emotional reaction, but we just know that he obeyed God. This son that God had promised him, the one that he loved, Isaac. What does his name mean? Remember? Laughter. This one who brought laughter is now the one that Abraham has to kill with his own hand. And so God tests Abraham. Is Abraham going to love his son? Is he going to love the gift more than the giver? And I'm sure that Abraham would have given all his possessions, all his, his tents and his flocks, all of his servants. He would have given them all up in Isaac's place. But he loved God even more than his son, even more than his things. And so as Abraham obeyed God and showed his love for God more than his love for his son, God says a little later in Genesis 12, or 22, verse 12, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham loved his son so much, but he loved God more and was willing to give him up at God's command. Hebrews 11 says this of Abraham, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. And we look at Abraham's obedience here, but his obedience was an act of faith, too. James 2, 21-22 says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So his faith was perfected, was strengthened, was made complete as he obeyed God and walked in faith. Now we're out of time, but let me just end with a few thoughts based on this passage, or these passages. First of all, not all those who express interest in salvation are ready to take hold of it on God's terms. That's clear here. And we need to make salvation from sin a part of our gospel message. Another way is to say it is that we need to preach the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel. Because if you say, believe in Jesus and be saved, what are you being saved from? And we don't want to have too light a view of sin, where, okay, well, I'll just say, Jesus saved me. Uh, maybe you yourself, or you had children or friends who've done this, say at a... At a a Sunday school class when they're little. Who wants to go to hell? And nobody raised their hand. Who wants to go to be with Jesus? And all the kids raise their hand and you say, well, pray this prayer with me. And then that's it. That's your, that's your insurance against hell. A very shallow understanding of the gospel with kids who don't even necessarily understand what they're doing. But we need to know why we need salvation. We need to know what we're being saved from and that God hates sin. God is angry with the sinners every day, as it says, and we need to be saved from that. And repentance, as turning away from your sins, is not a good work that earns our salvation, but it shows a heart that truly seeks for a Savior. And if this man really sought Christ, sought forgiveness, sought eternal life, he would have repented for his love of things. Second Corinthians 7.10 says this, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Was this young ruler sorry when he left Jesus? He was sorry, wasn't he? But he had a sorrow of the world. He didn't have a sorrow that produced repentance that leads to salvation. Another point to make is perhaps obvious, but have you yourself trusted in Christ? Have you found eternal life in Christ? Or is there something in your way? Maybe you don't have as much money as this young man here, but there could be something else, some other possessions you have, maybe relationships or things that are not sinful themselves but become hindrances to following Christ. Some people are just busy. I've talked to people who ask them if they want to come to church, invite them to church. and Yeah, I need to go to church more often, but they just don't, week after week, year after year. And because other things are more important to them. Even good things are more important than following Christ. And so we can all ask ourselves, especially if you don't know Christ, are there idols in your heart? Are there idols in your heart? Remember the, the rich man we saw some months ago now in Luke 16. He had all these wonderful things, all these good things, but he 
when he died, had nothing. And he had to uh, live in torment in, in Hades. And it, it says uh, that he, he wanted to have uh, Abraham to have mercy on him. But then he says later, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, that is Lazarus, my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they may not be with me in this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So the law and the prophets are to point people to the need for repentance and faith in Christ. So if you don't know Christ, death at your death, it's too late to repent. You need to repent beforehand. Ask yourself, is there anything in your life that is taking God's place? And if so, repent of that and ask Christ to forgive you. And even for Christians, we look at Jesus' command here in this story, we might ask ourselves how it affects us. Do we really need to sell everything we have? Now, sometimes Jesus says things that are hyperbolic, as you read earlier. Luke 14, if anyone does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we look in the rest of the Bible and we see many other passages showing that possessions are a, a blessing from God. But the, the question is, how important are these things to you? The truth is, whether we have a lot or a little doesn't necessarily reflect what's in our heart. Very poor people can also be very greedy, can't they? They can love their things. But if we love our stuff too much, it's better that we have less of it and bless someone else, all the while praying that God would rid us of our love for material things. So when we enjoy God's blessings, that honors him. But we must be thankful and generous and not let our affections turn from God to his blessings. We must love the giver more than the gift itself. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this look at the rich young ruler, though it's very sobering to see a young man who seems to ask good questions and yet isn't willing to accept the answers, accept the demands of Christ. It's easy, perhaps, to be judgmental of him, thinking about how proud and foolish he is, but we ourselves would be the same way if it were not for your grace. And we pray that there's any here today who have a stumbling block like this man's riches were to him, a stumbling block keeping them from Christ. May you remove that today. May this be a day of salvation for those who hear today. And for those of us who love other things more than you, may we repent of that even now. May we set them aside. May we learn to love you more and more, to follow you more closely, to, to see you yourself for the good God that you are, to follow Jesus in a righteous way that would honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.